He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. From the first psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. You might imagine this morning what it was like for David to compose that very first psalm. What was it that drove him? The impulse of a poet? The need for a new hymnal? The need for a new prayer book? Like so many rock stars, a pad of paper and a guitar and a cup of coffee? Just writing up words? Without a doubt, David had some of these words rattling around in his brain for some time. Words of history, words of praise, words of lament, and finally, words of wisdom. The Psalter begins, however, not with praises to God or with an extended meditation on Israel's history. Those will, become, those will come later. The psalmist begins with holding forth on the blessed life. What does it mean to live a blessed and happy life? How do you attain to that life? This question of what makes for a happy life has occupied philosophers for a good long time. It has stoked the imaginations of kings and it has puzzled many of us. David, the philosopher king, a man of common birth who unexpectedly becomes the greatest king in Israel's history and perhaps the greatest king in all of history, immediately looks at this question. He speaks from experience of both ends of the spectrum. What makes for a rotten, miserable life as well as what makes for a happy one? At the core of his answer is essentially this. That the happy, blessed man is the one who avoids evil and meditates on the law of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So for David, it's fairly simple. Don't seek out or walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't mimic sinners. Or be one who is constantly scoffing and complaining. Be one who delights in the law of the Lord, namely Holy Scripture. Let that be your constant meditation night and day. I'm reminded of what our own 39 articles say about this, about this blessed life. And I'll paraphrase for now because, you know, who wants to hear 16th century English in a sermon? Not me. Uh, But let me just, I'm paraphrasing. The blessed life does not consist in either presuming or despairing of one's salvation, but in receiving the promises of God and walking in His revealed will as found in Holy Scripture. Listen to that again. The blessed life does not consist in either presuming or despairing of one's salvation, a very common preoccupation of American Christians, but in receiving the promises of God and walking in His revealed will as found in Holy Scripture. You and I need to be daily reminded that true life, real life, abundant life, is found in knowing and serving the living God. Listen to how David continues. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Many today think that the blessed life comes from holding to the right opinions, from having good health, from working to set various wrongs right. And those may be good things, but David is convinced that if life is to be blessed and happy, that blessing and happiness come directly not only from the source of all blessedness and the source of all happiness, but also from their end. We aren't good today at thinking about what philosophers call teleology, the idea that everything in creation has a natural end to which it is drawn, rather a supernatural end to which it is drawn, nor are we good at thinking about things as having a source. Things simply exist. They are not caused. They are not made. And furthermore, they are not thought to have any identity beyond their mere utility. Or worse, our subjective opinions about what that utility might be. The ancients believed that everything in the natural order tends toward an end. Apple trees bring forth apples for us to eat. Streams bring, bring us water. The sun gives its light. So on and so forth. And David understands that what brings human beings happiness and blessedness is being planted firmly by a stream of living water. Namely, the living water of the divine Word. But I want to take things a step further this morning, which is to say that we should not immediately presume that the Psalter is talking about us. But as St. Augustine says, Christ is the comprehensive mystery behind all of Holy Scripture. Indeed, Augustine says immediately in his commentary on the Psalms that this blessed man is understood to be Jesus Christ Himself. The only truly blessed one. We do well to pay attention to this. For Augustine, as for all of the church fathers, human blessedness and virtue are only possible through and because of the Incarnation. You might think today of that famous dictum of St. Athanasius, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Or of the words of St. Irenaeus, so often misquoted, for the glory of God is a living man. And the life of man consists in beholding God. For if the manifestation of God, which is made by means of the creation, affords life to all living in the earth, much more does that revelation of the Father, which comes through the Word, give life to those who see God. And of course, Augustine says a great deal about this blessed vision of God. That to be truly blessed, to live a truly blessed life, is to see God. In fact, Plato himself preemptively agreed with all of this in his Republic. Or you might say Socrates. It's up to you. All that is needed for this blessed city, for this perfect city, is for one person with the right nature who is educated in the right ways, who has grasped the eternal forms to come among us. In the words of Plato, the philosopher must become a king. And those now called kings must genuinely and adequately philosophize. Can you imagine that? If in this coming week we were really asking the question, who is the greatest philosopher among these various candidates? Well, one can hope. The church's assertion through the ages is that Jesus Christ is this lover of wisdom, this blessed man, this philosopher king. 
David being the precursor of all of this. David is the first of that royal line, but by no means the last. The last is Jesus Christ, that last and eternal philosopher and eternal king who still reigns over all things in heaven and on earth. Here again from Augustine on this first psalm. The tree then, this tree that is imagined by the psalmist standing next to this stream of living water, he says that tree then, that is our Lord, from the running streams of water, that is from the sinful peoples drawing them by the way into the roots of His discipline, will bring forth fruit. That is, will establish churches in His season. That is, after He has been glorified by His resurrection and ascension into heaven. For then, by the sending of the Holy Ghost to the apostles and by the confirming of their faith in Him and their mission to the world, He made churches to bring forth fruit. I love that. He imagines Jesus Christ as this tree that bears fruit in its season that draws up from the streams of living water, draws up sinful people into the roots of His discipline By doing what? By establishing churches. I wish we would just think about that for a moment as as people who who are actively involved in the planting of churches that part of our job is to establish a means to establish the discipline of Christ in the world and the discipline of the church that people may be drawn up into Christ. Man, that that would get you moving on church planting. But did you catch what was being said there? The way for sinful people who don't know where to go, who don't know what to do, to become blessed is not to figure it out, but to be drawn into the roots of the discipline of Jesus Christ, not as individuals, but in the common disciplines of the church, and being so rooted to bring forth fruit. This is precisely what Jesus says of Himself. In the Gospel of John, abide in me as I in, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, it is astonishing today that very few Christians understand that love or really any true virtue, is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both the source and true end of all loves. We think that they can be found elsewhere, pursued through some other means, discovered without the baggage of religion or ritual, or even on a simple level, friendship with God. Most people truly believe that the blessed life comes from being or trying to be as best you can a good person. And they believe that this happens primarily through the exercise of good decisions. Doing this instead of that. Or worse, that as long as you don't do anything to anyone that harms them in any way, that you're just fine. So long as you keep to yourself and don't bother anyone, you're just fine. In fact, One of my favorite uh, authors, Christian Smith, a sociologist, says that most young people think, just as long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, I'll be okay. Because he's definitely in hell. (laughs) 
as long as I'm better than him, as long as I try to be better than him, I'll be okay. And so we should not be surprised that the summary of the law often falls on deaf ears, our ears most of all, who hear it every time the Eucharist is celebrated. It is a unique feature of Anglican liturgy to recite that summary. In fact, I'm very thankful to the prayer book committee for bringing it back to all the liturgies that had been fallen out of some of them before. It is there because for Anglicans, as for all Catholic Christians, the ability to love comes from the source of all loves. It is enabled by the source of all graces, and all love returns to its source. We understand that what we do here today is not merely to think upon or ponder Christ, or to bring Him our good intentions, but to receive participation in His body and blood, and thereby be transformed into His image, actually becoming a people filled with the love of God and the love of our neighbor. For those of you who've been married for some time, you find this to be very much the case. As long as you attempt to love your spouse with all the love that you can muster, all the love that you can sort of cook up, you always find that it's just not enough, is it? You must love with a love that is foreign to you. You must love with a love that is a gift. You must love with a love that comes from somewhere other than you. It should be quite clear that Jesus is Himself able to fulfill this ancient law not only because He is the lawgiver, but because He is a full human being with neighbors to love and fully God able to perfectly love God. And it is for this reason that Christians have said through the centuries that the only true love comes from God, from the God who is love. The Apostle John writes, we love because He first loved us. I could continue on forever, quoting Scripture after Scripture, speaking of the love of God and the center of all true wisdom, not only to love God, but to love the very law of God. To love His will above our own. What I want to say this morning is something about what it means to be perfected in love. Being grown up in our loves. This morning the Pharisees come to Jesus putting forth a lawyer to question Him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? It's a question to which the lawyer already knows the answer. All the Pharisees know the answer. They've known this for a long time. They know the answer. Ever since the words of Deuteronomy 6 have been written, they have been written on the very doorposts of the Jewish people. You know, when you get home this morning, just read Deuteronomy 6. It's, it'll read something like this, and I'll put it in modern terms. You, know, you should talk about them with your children. You should write them on your doorposts. You should... Speak of them when you're in the minivan going to school and soccer practice. You should talk about it all the time until you're blue in the face. They are the first words said upon rising and the very last of the day. They are the words which you say when you think or know you're about to die. This is just a recommendation, but if you have not watched Israeli television, which is widely available on streaming services, get to it. It's fantastic. I was watching one of these shows a couple days ago, and this man was about to die. He had a gun at his head. And what were the first things that he said? 
Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The answer Jesus gives is no new answer. He is in utter agreement with the Pharisees. What is shocking, what is surprising is what comes later in the text. And I want you to see this connection. The Pharisees have come to Jesus asking a question. What is the great commandment in the law? What is the commandment that overshadows all the rest? We know the answer. We just want to hear you say it. And what does Jesus say? He gives them the very answer they were looking for. You know it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He adds to it by saying, on these two commandments spend all the law and the prophets, which would have been something the Pharisees would have loved as well. So what's the problem? It's what comes later. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Pharisees believe that by keeping all of these commandments, they can keep this summary of the law perfectly. And Jesus is showing them no way, no how. That's not how it works. Go back to those very first words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Who is the Lord? This is the question he's answering right here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's speaking directly about David. He's speaking directly about the eternal son of David. He's speaking directly about the Messiah, the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus is saying here that the Christ is one and the same, the Lord who is both the source and true end of the law, and He is pointing without a doubt directly to Himself. He shows clearly that, not only not, that He is not only knowledgeable concerning the law, but He is the very source of it as the Lord of the law. He shows them what they do not want to see. That if they are to become perfect, yes, even according to the law, they must become like Jesus. I want you to hear this. That Christian perfection does not come from holding every jot and tittle and doing everything right. Christian perfection does not come from sort of saying, I'm going to be virtuous. Being grown up, being mature, does not come from those things. That's what the Pharisees thought. Jesus shows them what they do not want to see. That they must become like Jesus. They must become like the one of whom the first psalm speaks. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Who meditates perfectly day and night, always and forever, eternally, at the right hand of the Father, on the Word of God, but the Word of God Himself. This is what must be said on this morning. 
That to be perfected in love is to be conformed to the source of that love. To be drawn forward by the end of that love. The perfect lover par excellence, Jesus Christ. To love not by our own standards or our own intuitions or our own sensibilities, but in and through the One who first loved us. This consists not in trite tautologies like, well, Father Nelson, love is love. Really? For the Christian, Jesus Christ is love. God is love. And we must love not by what we think is most loving. We must love as a people formed in the very disciplines of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you on this morning, how do we see this love in its deepest, most mature fashion? Is it not on the cross? There Jesus offers Himself to the Father, surrendering Himself not just to the will of God, but to the love of God the Father. It is there that He fulfills what He says, not my will, but Thine be done. It is there that He stretches out Himself to the Father. But He also stretches out His arms wide to us, fulfilling perfectly this way of self-emptying love of neighbor. Do you not realize that? You are Jesus' neighbor. And He loves you perfectly. Today, brothers and sisters, we approach the cross appealing to the Father for His love while simultaneously appealing to Him that we would be made a people filled with the love of our neighbor. We ask for the very power of the body sacrificed on that cross. For the very power of the blood poured out. And this is the reason, beloved, that the mission of the church to love a lost and broken world is Eucharistically powered. I want you to hear that. This mission of Jesus Christ to love a lost and broken world is Eucharistically powered. What gives rise to the great mission of the church? But the disciplines she learns from Christ in communion with Christ. How is she drawn up into His roots? How is she made to participate in His life? Paul says it. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Powerful mission comes from deep communion with the end of all mission. Jesus Christ, deep meditation upon His law, deep fellowship with the Lord in prayer. Taking on His disciplines, taking on His ways. Not just sort of taking your ways and asking Jesus to sanctify them. This is the source of mature, grown-up love. To be daily remade, to be daily sanctified, to be daily conformed to the person of Jesus Christ in whom all loves subsist and to which all loves have their perfect end. What is asked of us at the end of the day? What is asked? Simply this. 
to surrender to the will of the Father. To, in a sense, be made vulnerable to the will of the Father. To say, my love is nothing. My desires are nothing. Lord Jesus Christ, fill me with your love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.